love dogs. I love dogs, too. Glad we're all on the same page. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to the Sarah Andreco Show. Steve Dale, welcome. Thank you so much for lending some expertise and time uh, with our listeners today. I'm really excited about kind of extrapolating as much information from you in this short little 45 minutes to an hour that we have about really helping people in the veterinary um, professional community and the behavior world get all of this important information. We have all this upcoming science and um, research that over the past decade in particular has kind of skyrocketed and taken off and really lent a hand in how we handle our animals, how we um, how we you know address behavioral problems, medical problems, handling in the field. And we have all this information that we wanna get out to clients. And sometimes that can be tricky and challenging. So I thought you would be the perfect person Giving, um, given uh, how much you do radio shows and TV shows. I mean, you've been on Animal Planet, Oprah, Good Morning America. The list goes on and on of all these different platforms that you've been a part of to get information out to people. And so I'd like to talk about how to kind of do this in a fun and inviting way, in a way that people want to consume information and help the veterinary professionals out there get clients up to date on some of the science and the research about why we do things the way that we do with their animals and why we need to start abandoning some of these old outdated methods, so to speak. And as you know, that might be a little bit trickier um, than simple and straightforward. Uh, I always like to think about the Facebook posts um, or the Instagram posts that veterinary hospitals put out that are really important, you know, about heartworm disease, like how heartworms are actually contracted. You know, most most people that don't know anything about heartworm disease associate it with GI worms. You know, they don't even know it, it gets transmitted by a mosquito. But when you put that post on Facebook and you have this wonderful, yeah, this wonderful heartworm disease post, it gets no engagement, no likes, nobody cares. But then you post that cute puppy picture of snuggling with the puppy that came in for vaccines and it blows up. So I'm hoping you can help direct us, guide people in the right direction of how to really present themselves in different platforms, forms of media to get that important information out there in a fun and consumable way. So thanks so much for joining me today. And uh, yeah. That's a we'll lot to unpack. Right yeah, I'll tell you. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, th I think one of the biggest issues now is misinformation. Uh, pet parents are desperate, I believe, I really do, more than ever before for correct information. And that is one of the reasons why we're so dependent on anything we can get. Unfortunately, what people get is often what you don't want them to get, and that falls under two categories most often. Falls under a lot of categories, including heartworm, which I'm happy to talk about. But one of the categories, <laughs> one of the categories that fall, and by the way, for the first time ever, millennials are saying, really? I need parasiticides for cats? I'm willing yes. to do, and I'm willing to Finally. do Finally. So, so I, I think that things can move in the right direction, and it's all being driven, incidentally, by millennials who really want these things to happen uh, because the human-animal bond has always been significant. It's hard for me to say it's more significant than ever before, but still, I think it is more significant in that for millennials, uh, if they have kids, if they have kids, and they may not, with two legs, those pets came first and, and yes. kind of were their children in a way that has never been preceded by so many people in previous generations. That's not to mention the fact that more and more and more millennials only children 
are children with fur or children with four legs, and they really do consider their pets their children. So they want, they care, and they want the right information. What I was saying is the uh, misinformation most often falls under two buckets, uh, behavior and most of all, nutrition. And, mm. and people are sometimes married to what they, I mean, they are really, really entrenched in into what those beliefs happen to be in both of those categories. And that can cause actually a problem for our companion animals. But the tunnel vision is such uh, where they don't see it, unfortunately. But do you think that's primarily due to influencer nation now? So where you have people that are influencers that have an opinion and share that opinion and now all of a sudden it becomes what everybody attaches to just because they have this online presence versus what is actually truly beneficial or healthy for individual animals. I feel like there's a lot of belief system in influencers, whether there should be or shouldn't. You're totally right about that. So unfortunately, uh, the veterinary professional and my friend, Dr. Marty Becker, is, is doing something to change that, actually, uh, creating a group of veterinarians that are influencers in themselves to work together to influence a, a broader group of people, which is an idea I love, rather than some random pug offering advice because the company paid the pug's person to offer that advice, and that person has no expertise, no knowledge, no experience uh, in animal behavior or veterinary medicine and may or may not be misinformed themselves, even if it does come from a good place. So how do your veterinarians compete with this? How does your average everyday small private practice put information out there and compete with said pug influencer? You know, I love that question and I think it can be done. And, and you describe some of it uh, so there are two things. One, you described a bit of uh, in your introduction uh, that people post on their, uh, their practice website something about, you use the example, I think, of heartworm disease. Not very exciting. And then you post an image of the cutest puppy in the world and you have 15,000 people that say, I love it, I love it, I love it, I love it. And that seems to get more attention. Well, what you do is you mix and match mixing it up really does matter because if you can attract people to your page even if they don't like that heartworm post they may read it at least they're going to see it and you have a shot at it a shot at giving correct information out there the other thing is that you can create for example uh, dog training so say something i'm hoping you believe in positive reinforcement dog training whoever Absolutely. you are that's watching right <laughs> i know you do sarah uh, and, and you write about why when you seek out a dog trainer, look for a positive reinforcement dog trainer. Uh, right at this point in time, uh, people happily are adopting still, uh, adopting dogs and cats in large numbers uh, compared to, say, two years ago, pre-pandemic. Not sure why that is, but I'm glad it is. Uh, so offering advice and just little tidbits like, did you know your dog will ask you questions every single day? Sometimes when you're taking a bath. I mean, have fun with it, but provide information at the same time. You can also go to credible sources and, and borrow from link to those pages. So hopefully I'm one of those sources. I know a lot of veterinarians do that. Fear-free, happy homes. 
that is an amazing site because it is very consumer client friendly it's fun but everything everything that's written there is it's like a peer-reviewed journal because everything is not only read by an editor who happens to know companion animals has written books edited many books about companion animals herself but she's also checking grammar and spelling and all those sorts of things but it's also reviewed by a veterinary behaviorist and the technician boarded in veterinary behavior every story that's written that's amazing you know and it's it's just information for clients so finding websites like fearfreehappyhomes.com uh, the cat friendly practices folks catfriendly.com they have a similar kind of site um, it's a bit more scientific in places but uh, our site I'm, I say ours because I'm on the board of directors of what was called the wind feline foundation it's now called the every cat health foundation everycat.org anything.edu send them to sites link link on your page because you can't first of all if it's been written already you know, if the Heartworm Society, and the, by the way, the American Heartworm Society, I think it's heartwormsociety.org, they have information on their website, since you mentioned Heartworm, uh, that is actually geared It's one of my favorite for, topics. <laughs> is it really? Uh, mine Always too. comes to mind when I'm looking no, for examples. Fine. I'm like, Heartworm, Heartworm, yep. <laughs> and it's geared, they have information that's geared for the general public on their site. So linking to those sites that you can trust, that you know, that's not written... I mean, maybe every now and again, a journal article from JAFMA or whatever, fine. But by and large, your clients aren't going to read that, right? So look for websites that are client-friendly, quick reads, just like we don't have time to read. Nobody has time to read now, right? It seems. So quick reads, um, even, even cartoon sorts of things, Fear Free Happy Homes has some information embedded in what are cartoons really you know uh it's not only for adults it's for the entire family obviously for children too the point is the information's out there <clears throat> excuse me you don't have to recreate the wheel all the time and oh i don't have time to write a 500 word story about heartworm uh, or whatever it might be you can take information from trusted sources mixing up that information taking fun just pure fun information that's correct or images with clients permission of course of your own clients the dogs and cats in practice you know that come to you mix it up and by mixing it up you will over time be able to impact and influence people well i love that you mentioned um client permission to use their photos. <clears throat> I'm seeing more and more of that come out, especially on Instagram, where the hospitals are taking pictures of clients' animals. But yes, always get that permission, of course. But clients love that. They love of to course. see their pets on somebody else's page, on some, being shared somewhere else, and that their vet really loves their animal, and that they, they love them so much that they're sharing them with their audience as well. And so I think that, especially with millennials too, that really strikes um, a positive sure. response and they're likely to share that information and talk well about their vet, things like that. So I like that, that you bring up that point. But yeah, really, you have all of these animals coming in and out of the hospital every single day. And I like tying together some of that informative stuff with that cute stuff. And so I have all these opportunities all throughout the day just to snap a couple of pictures here and there, load them up to an album, a shared album that 
anybody can use, anybody that's posting for you on your site and throw in some fun little tidbits. And um, all of these sites that you mentioned, I think are super helpful. I'm gonna put these sites that you just mentioned in the show notes and the links below so people can follow those and go directly to them. Because if you can just sit down for an hour and pull out all of these little tidbits of information that are already there, all these articles that are already present, you can easily lay out all of your content for the next two weeks just on a a simple hour of pulling out that information and then with all of your pictures throughout the day you have all of that to go with each of your posts and you can really kind of easily blend that so you don't have to feel pressured to create all this information or these videos they're already out there you can pull from other trusted sources to be able to put that content together yeah so if if what so the rule is rules for everything right so for (laughs) what we're talking about it's called the rules of three And we talked about two of those. One is taking information that you create. You actually create the information, which can be as simple as that cute Frenchie that comes into the practice that does a little dance and you happen to have your phone around and you capture that on on video. People love video, by the way, Yes. Uh, more than ever before. We've always loved video. People want to see videos even more than they do images, as long as the video is really brief. So you catch the little Frenchie doing a little Frenchie dance, running in a happy way, because maybe you're a fear-free practice. So happy way, running around the exam room, clearly a happy dog. Frenchies do things like that. So it happens to be a Frenchie and you shoot it. That's that's one. So it's, uh, it's, it's content you create. The second rule would be content, as we've talked about, from the Cornell, here's another one, Cornell Feline Health Center, content from uh, the American Animal Hospital Association. They do have some still contact on their site. So does the American Veterinary Medical Association. So uh, back when, not as much now, people were concerned about COVID-19 and their pets. The American Veterinary Medical Association, by the way, did an incredible job, and they still have information up on their website for clients that are worried uh, or want further information about whether a dog or cat can get COVID, whether they can transmit COVID, all that kind of thing. Uh, so whatever that whatever that trusted source is, again, you're welcome to go to stevedale.tv, my site, but whatever that trusted source is, that's the second thing. First, create your own, and the second is use somebody else's who you trust. So what's the third? The third is taking that opportunity in social media to promote yourself. So it's, let's say, not Pet Dental Health Month, right? That's Mm -hmm. back in February, but you're doing a special on dentals and you want to promote that. I mean, let's face it. One of the things, and and I hope this is true, one, one thing that you should be doing in social media is finding ways to promote yourself. Finding ways to say, uh, this veterinarian that just joined our practice happened to win an award uh, last year. Uh, yeah, yell that out to the public as much as you can. Or we won an award or or not even an award that we're having a promotion. Uh, heartworm preventive products are on sale this week. Whatever it might be, take the opportunity to, we're offering a puppy class. Whatever it might be, uh, promote, think about ways in which you can promote yourself. Now, if you do only that, you're in trouble 
because people don't want to see that all the time. But as I said, it's a rule of threes. It doesn't have to be exactly a third, a third, a third, but if it's approximately that, experts say that is the way to succeed most. Uh, for businesses, and after all, you are a business, right, in social media. Yeah, I think that's a really good rule of thumb for people to decide whether they have the right balance with the content that they're producing or not. That's a, that's a great thing to go off of. It's very simple. It's something that's very easy to follow and probably, you know, causes some people a little sigh of relief that they don't have to create everything that they're putting out. There's a break there. But you, um, you bring you up... Don't. You, you bring up a point too that I want to mention a little bit about, and I think that's being strategic and who is putting together all of this content and this information. Because often what I find just with some of the local animal hospitals that I work with here and there is that it's, um, there's not really strategy to it. It's just, oh yeah, you know, Denise took this picture and Tammy took that picture and we just kind of throw it all together. And sometimes it gets posted and sometimes it doesn't. So what are your thoughts on having kind of an order of operations as far as who's kind of overseeing that or collecting that information instead of just relying on people to kind of piecemeal it here and there with what they have? Well, I love the fact we're having this conversation, first of all. Thank you, Sarah, <laughs> because this is something I get asked about a lot because I'm in the media. And sometimes I appear at veterinary conferences uh, with my pal Bill Schroeder, who sets up websites and sets up social media for in-touch practice communications for clients, veterinary clinics all over the country. And uh, Bill is just the best at what he does. Um, and, and he's a great speaker, by the way, and I'm honored to be able to speak with him at many conferences here and there. Uh, the, the question you asked me is a really, really good one, but I want to back up a step. When you say sure. social media, what does that mean? Where are you going to be? And people get overwhelmed, especially in the world of private practices, where they don't have corporate support. So there's Instagram, and there's Twitter, and there's Facebook. Oh, and by the way, do I put myself on these other platforms, you know, the, like TikTok, do I do that? Mm -hmm. and, and, and do I put myself on LinkedIn? And if so, is that the practice? Is that me personally that's on a site like LinkedIn? Where, where do you, you can't be everywhere. So first of all, strategically decide where you want to be. Uh, are you going to be on YouTube? And if so, are you going to do regular YouTube videos? What are they going to look like? Are you going to do podcasts like this or video podcasts like this? What, what do you want to do? You can do all those things, I suppose, but then that's all you'd be doing. You probably right. wouldn't be practicing veterinary medicine very often. So <laughs> pick and choose what you think and talk to someone like Bill or someone like me and, and someone from the outside, as well as people within the practice, which gets to your next question. We underutilize veterinary technicians and nurses in so many different ways. We, we, we really do. Um, one way in which these amazing people can be utilized is for those that are interested, which is not everyone, uh, in social media. Take a technician or two in your practice, if there is interest, and say, hey, do you want to do this? And maybe, if it's possible, even pay the person a bit extra to do it. I was just going to say, and please pay them. <laughs> please pay. It is so worth it. Give yes. them the extra money. It's nothing off your bottom line at the end of the year, really. 
I yeah, so, so, so agree with that. Thank you for saying that. You know, um, <laughs> I'll, I'll take this opportunity. So when I speak at conferences, as I do, I'm grateful that I do all over the country. But you know what, Sarah? Not lately, right? So right yeah. now, it's worse than jet lag because I have to go through my kitchen to get to the office. And I spend more time in my kitchen than on airplanes, which is a whole other problem. <laughs> so, so when I speak at conferences, I, in America, never give a talk without saying this. If it weren't for veterinary technicians and nurses, this profession would not look like anything like it does in America. To me, we have lots of heroes in veterinary medicine, but they are. And if you're a technician or a nurse, I'm talking to you, you are, especially mm -hmm. now, especially now at, yeah. the top, at the top of that list. And, and not only underutilized, under-recognized by not only the profession at times, which is really sad, but by pet parents who have no clue of all you do and all you can do. And when I say can do, it gets back to underutilization. So typically, depending on the size of the practice and I suppose who happens to be at that practice, but typically there is a technician or nurse that says, yeah, I love social media and I wanna learn more about it. Or maybe they already know enough to kind of get going and kind of take over the social media. So to your question originally, about an hour ago, was, all right, who does this in the real world? How do I make it happen? And that is a way for many, not everybody, but many to make it happen. And yes, incidentally, it should be strategic. So think about that rule of threes I spoke about for starters. Think about the platforms you want to be in in the first place. No one can be on every platform. That should not be the goal. You know, and, and yeah. if you're doing YouTube videos, I could give you some tips on that and talk about it. If you're doing podcasts, you can probably give me and I can give you tips <laughs> also about doing that and, and, and what the goals should be for the practice. And it's no different. Same for Facebook, same for Instagram. Instagram's a big one now, of course, now, you know, right now. Images, that's what people want to see. But what you choose ultimately is up to you and what your goals are. Well, also, um, I just want to mention briefly, too, that the, these platforms are not all the same. Like, say you particularly like receiving your information from Instagram. That doesn't necessarily mean that Instagram's the platform you should choose to put your information on because the way that you consume and the way that you present are two different things. Sure. So in choosing which of these platforms, do I want to be on YouTube? Do I want to be on TikTok? Well, does the person that's posting, does your material, does your content fit what's going to do well on that particular platform? You know, they're very specific. You know, LinkedIn is very professional. So you're right. It's kind of representing the business in its entirety. Those little one-off cute comments or funny remarks don't really necessarily fit within that kind of LinkedIn space. Whereas on TikTok, everything's very fast moving and to music and has trendy clips with it. And, you know, so it's, it's different and it's a different set of skills and a different set of work for each of these individual platforms. So I think it's almost just as important or if not as important in selecting the people that are going to help you put this content together, that you're selecting the right platforms, not just the platforms you like to consume from, but the ones that are right for what you're going to put out there to the world. And it depends on who your audience is. So a surprising number. So if your practice is in Pompano Beach, Florida, and 
half of your practice is over to the age of 150, you know, <laughs> then you might have a different perspective than a practice in Brooklyn, you know, where you've got all these hipsters coming in. I think Brooklyn's right. like that now, you know. So <laughs> I, I've heard it's like that. I haven't been to Brooklyn late. I haven't been anywhere lately. But uh, the point is that uh, look at who you're trying to reach and look who you are reaching, you know. And a surprising number of senior citizens are on Facebook for sure. And, mm -hmm. and that's, if that's the goal and that's your audience, that's great. But there's no need to go to TikTok. If you're looking for those hipsters, maybe, maybe having a page on TikTok wouldn't be a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. De who is your demographic? Exactly. And, and those are analytics that you can easily pull from these different platforms too. Like who's consuming your information? Take a look at your your business pages. And, and if you don't know how to do it, I think this is where I feel like pulling in expertise helps. Like if you don't currently have a media person, they're, they're so worth it to bring on board too. If you don't have a marketing professional that's a part of your team or that you contract out, this is where some of that expertise comes into play because they can help you funnel, you know, the information that you're putting out there to actually reach the audience that you want to reach. Whereas if you're just, you know, throwing information out there on these different platforms, you're really just throwing darts. You're not necessarily reaching the people that, that you want to be coming into contact with or engaging with. Yeah, that's a part of what my pal Bill Schroeder does. And there are others who do that very well too, Eric Garcia, but there are others out there as well that are, I mean, that's not what I do, but there are others that, that do that. And what they do is advise practices and say, okay, here's what you can do. Here's the direction your socials should go in. Uh, and sometimes, depending on what you're looking for, they'll even do some of that for you. Yes, definitely. Um, so talk to me a little bit about personality. I want to I touch on this because I think self-awareness is really important when we're discussing presence on social media, but also just media in general. So, um, you know, doing segments on the local news station about pet dental month or heartworm disease and awareness, things like that. Um, you really want to put your best foot forward and your best face forward for people um, so that things are well communicated and kind of consumed again in a way that people want to consume them. So I just wanted to have you touch on this a little bit because the last thing I, 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 I'll give you an example. One of the things that drives me batty is when I call a veterinary hospital and I get the answering machine and it's mm. you've reached blah 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 we're open Monday through Friday our hours are ah, da, and I don't even know what the rest of the message is because all I hear is da 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 I'm reading from a script so um that's not engaging right and and maybe you have somebody that has a brighter more upbeat personality that can kind of make people feel warm and comfortable and people are actually going to listen to what the message says because of how it's presented so can you touch a little bit on self-awareness and kind of recognizing that it's not just the first person that puts their hands up and volunteers or you selecting someone, but picking the right person for the right job? Well, it's not only the right person for the right job, it's the right technology now, right? Uh, people want to be communicated with the way they want to be communicated with. And for most practices, not every practice, not that practice in Pompano Beach that has <laughs> clients that average 155 years old or whatever I said, but for most practice, practices, statistically, most people that have a pet are millennials. And the number of millennials that have pets is growing like that. And mm. the number in other age categories is staying the same or actually declining. So uh, millennials are where it's at and they don't want to be communicated with necessarily the way I wanted to be communicated with 10 years ago, or even the way I want to be communicated with now, 
or the way that 150-year-old client in Pompano Beach, Florida wants to be communicated with. And that matters hugely, hugely. You can take advantage of that. Um, there's a platform called Weave that I love because it works. Where's my phone here? I've got my mm -hmm. phone here somewhere. It works just like my phone or, or your phone if you have an iPhone. So when you call me, when you call me, Sarah, on my iPhone, your name comes up, so I know exactly who's calling. But in Weave, all this other information comes up. Everything, including your pet's birthday. So the person who answers the phone says, "Oh, happy birthday to Fluffy," ah. or, "Oh my gosh, you haven't had a heartworm test in six years." All of that, <laughs> sh all of that shows up here. You haven't been in in six years, even you know, because you have a cat. Now mm -hmm. there must be something dramatically wrong with that cat if you're yes. that kind of client that only calls up once every six years, right? All of that information pops up, everything in the records pops up on the phone and the person who answers the phone at the clinic can see it. If it's one of those clinics that you describe where the person calling in, and, and there's some new shocking data. I, you know, I didn't know we'd be talking about exactly this topic. I'm happy to do that, but there's new data and I don't know it off the top of my head, but I can give you the gist of it. So I don't know the specific numbers, I apologize. But the gist That's of okay. it indicates how many people out there with a pet don't have a regular veterinarian. Mm. And to me, it's shocking. It may not be shocking to you guys, I don't know, but it's shocking to me. And it shouldn't be that way. I will tell you, next to my wife, my guy who handles my computer stuff, because he could be even right up there with my wife as the most important person. <laughs> but We won't tell her. <laughs> she knows. The next <laughs> most important is my our veterinarian. And yeah. for millennials, that is so incredibly true or can be, can be if you develop a relationship. And th then the thinking on the other side is, well, millennials aren't as devoted, they're not as loyal, that's the word I'm looking for, as previous generations. And there is some truth to that. But when you really dig down deep into the data, there's only truth to that under certain circumstances. So if you communicate the way millennials like to be communicated with, which can be as advantageous to you as to them, by the way, because you may be saving time. For instance, using a product like, uh, what did I say? Um, Weave, Weave, sorry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, mm -hmm. A product like Weave, and I'm sure there's others like it, uh, to use text to communicate back and forth. So you're not using your home phone or your personal yes. phone. But, but you can do that too. But when you do that, that's preferred by, in general, millennials today, increasingly by everyone today, actually. Yes. It's as personal to them as it is to communicate in any other way. And even if I don't get it or you don't get it, that's just the reality. But the fact is, it actually saves you time. But what millennials want today at the end of the day is no different than what great grandpa veterinarian sought to do and what James Harriet 
did mm -hmm. when he crisscrossed the country, and that is to build trust and have a personal relationship with those clients. I mean, I think the most important thing you can say to a client once clients begin to actually enter exam rooms again is, how's your mother? Now, the reason yeah. why I say that is because you're asking something that's clearly personal to them. You're relating to them in, in a different way. You know, I, I remember reading a story in one of the veterinary publications saying, you have to work hard, and the story went on forever. It was like a 15,000-word story. Continued on page 8, continued on page 28, continued on page 58. It kept going and going and going. And the story was how to practice demonstrating empathy. I don't know anyone in this profession who doesn't have that anyway. Otherwise, you don't go into the veterinary profession because you're going to be a multimillionaire. Luckily, yeah. a few people might be, but uh, it's, it's not the goal at the very beginning before you decide to go to vet school. I don't know a technician, similarly, or nurse who goes into the profession for that purpose, right? Uh, it's because you care about animals and maybe, I hope, care about people and care about families. But it's mostly that care for animals that drove most of you that I've met, everyone I've met, to go into the profession in the first place. I don't think you have to practice empathy. You have it. So use what you have. But I say, ask about the mom or somebody. How was your trip to Mexico? Uh, oh, I heard you just moved. Whatever it might be to make that personal connection. It's worth, I know you work on time, but it's worth that 30 seconds to build that trust. What's more, if you, it's probably more like two minutes than 30 seconds in reality. What's more though, it gives that person time to breathe, time to relax. Pets pick up on their people's anxiety. In many cases, that pet may be anxious anyway. So it gives that pet time to relax talk in a calm, soft voice, of course, not 28 people in the room, you and probably a technician or nurse, and that's about it, right? Uh, all of that, I think, really does matter. I'm not even sure what you asked me anymore. So <laughs> I hope I, answer, hope I answered the question. No, I, I, we were talking about millennials and, and, and what they want and what their needs are, and I think hitting on that, that personal aspect is of great importance. And especially, especially, I want to put exclamation points near this, with calming them down in the exam room because yes, your pets feed off of you and that that anxiousness, and they have no idea why they're anxious. They just know that their pet parent is anxious and so they're going to be anxious too. So if you can kind of break that cycle and break them out of that thought process, what comes next? Is my dog going to be upset about this? They're going to put a thermometer in its butt. Like what's going to happen next? You know, if you can break them out of that thought cycle and just Bring the blood pressure down a little bit. Bring the you know the heart rate down a little bit. Slow the breathing to where they're calm for their pet to be calm. That is really powerful. Um, <clears throat> but I will say I think it's a great challenge. I really do. You mentioned you know empathy among veterinary professionals, and I I couldn't agree more. I think everyone in the veterinary profession is there because they are empathetic in nature. But I believe it's because they are first and foremost empathetic towards animals in nature. Um, and I I you know. Coming from me, I'm. This, this is going to be very surprising, I'm sure, but I'm an introvert. I I'm, feel like I'm a very socially awkward person. So for me to ask someone in a room about how their mom is doing or how their friend is or how their trip is, is like 
<laughs> you know, it's difficult. It's not easy. It doesn't come natural. Whereas interacting with an animal is incredibly natural and fluid and there's no anxiousness or anxiety related to that. And I think a lot of technicians, nurses, and veterinarians in particular are introverted and they have kind of their small circle that they feel comfortable being open and communicative with. And it is, it's to me, it's a skill set and it's a very important skill set. So if you are that person kind of like me, that straight to business, here's what's going on, here's what we're doing, um, you know, and, and not bringing in that personal touch to it because it makes you uncomfortable to bring that personal touch into it because I don't want you to ask me about my mom when I'm in the room with you either, you know? So if the other person I'm speaking with starts asking me personal questions, now I feel even more awkward. But all that to say, I think it's a skill set and I think it's a very necessary skill set to become more comfortable opening up and inviting people to be slightly more personal and having that personal touch to it because then you don't feel like a transaction as a client. You don't feel like the next $300 that comes through the door. You actually feel like a part of the community and then you can develop a stronger loyalty. Because like you said, loyalty is different now. It's about what I feel is best at that time rather than I've been seeing this same person. My pet has been a patient here for the past 10 years. Like I'm very loyal. I think that's where you can start weaving some of that loyalty back in by really, really honing in on that skill set of bringing that personal aspect back to your practice, whether it's uncomfortable or not. Oh, I agree with you. And you're saying it all better than I could, you know, so... You're, you're absolutely right about that. And uh, I, I think that I know that, and there have been, this isn't my opinion, there have been studies that have been done demonstrating uh, that the bond is more intense than ever. In fact, I have one talk I give at veterinary conferences, uh, and the, the title of the talk is, Are We Too Bonded to Our Pets? Mm. Are there mm. downsides to that? So. There is no question that people are more bonded than, than ever before. So if they're more bonded than ever before, why aren't they seeing a veterinarian? But they kind of are. So there's good news here. Millennials, actually, if we look at veterinary visits, they're kind of like this, kind of like this, kind of like this. They're going down, they're going down. But if we look at cats only and pull cats away and then pull millennials out, the millennial cat visits are actually going up a bit. So, and, and their spending is too. The other thing we know is that millennials, more than any other de demographic, will do what they can to spend money, if it takes that, on their companion animals and are less likely than any other generation to say, I'm going to bargain with you. Okay, uh, I can't afford $1,200, but I could afford 1000 Can I do whatever it is you want me to do for $1,000 as other generations? I mean, it was like going to Acapulco, going to the veterinarian. You were bargaining all the time, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and that's wrong. Veterinarians, in my view, <laughs> shouldn't do that. Veterinarians may offer choices yes. to people, but not say, okay, I'm going to negotiate with you on this. Because, you know, you don't really know what people's finances are, for starters. And, and uh, secondly, that's no medical profession does that. And I, I believe it's demeaning a bit to veterinary medicine. I don't think veterinarians should be doing that either. Having said that, now we get into a whole category potentially of discussion uh, about uh, what about people that truly can't afford. And there are people like Dr. Michael Blackwell and others that are uh, really invested in doing something about that now. You asked me about doing media about four hours ago and about doing... <laughs> 
<laughs> about doing and, and the importance of that. And I think it can be. So, you know, we talked about social media, and that's the thing to talk about now, right? But mm -hmm. traditional media is still kind of where it's at. People still do watch TV. I'd like to think, having radio shows, that people still listen to the radio. Yeah. Still, people read newspapers where they exist, which isn't everywhere anymore necessarily. But certainly blogs exist, and, and you could be interviewed by a blogger or an online publication of some sort. So definitely doing traditional media matters too. And, and just as important as that that we haven't talked about, and that is getting yourself out into the community in some way, shape, or form, whether it be judging a Halloween contest for pets or yes. uh, uh, when we're taping this, you and I, uh, St. Patrick's Day is around the corner. There are St. Patrick's Day events. Now, there aren't many of these events right now because of COVID, but they will come back. Uh, or And some of them are virtual. The point is getting yourself out there in the community in a way you, it could be a local animal shelter. Getting yourself out there in a community in the way you care about uh, is something that may help you to feel good, but moreover, it gives you exposure in the community, as does social media that we talked about, as does traditional media. Yeah, I love the the community factor um, because that's really an opportunity for you to get information into the hands of people. I always tell um, I've done a lot of events with um, nonprofit organizations and my one rule was always everyone that comes to the table leaves with something like give them something to take home to remember you to look into things afterwards. But yeah, here we have um, in Charlotte, North Carolina, we've got like Bark in the Park and Petpalooza and Black Dog Days and all these fun events that are outdoors. And I love seeing the veterinarians out there because you can offer things like, you know, flip the lip, like let's do a free dental exam on every dog sure. that comes through and let them walk away with some information that they can consume on their own time without feeling judged, right? Especially if you flip the lip and you're like, holy tartar, um, that way, you know, <laughs> yeah. they can walk away with something without that piece of judgment, maybe call you later to ask or doing a microchip clinic or a rabies clinic or any number of things just to reach populations that you might not be necessarily reaching or people that don't even know you're there. And then that is such an excellent opportunity to be able to give them something that may potentially bring them back so that you can start cultivating that relationship. Yeah, I feel like there's a million ideas. I love your Halloween costume contest idea. That's that's a that's a great one to do because it's fun, right? That's what people want to be involved in. And if there isn't one already in your community, you can host one, whatever it Bingo. is. Halloween yes. contest or anything else. Uh, our veterinary clinic did something for Valentine's Day several years ago, and we still have the images of our dogs and cat and me and my wife at the kissing booth, you know? Yeah, so the kissing it's just, Yeah, it's just fun. And by the way, it's also, I'm a huge proponent. Let me say that again. I'm a huge <laughs> proponent of fear fruit. Huge. Huge, <laughs> uh, for all sorts of different reasons. And uh, one is if we can get our companion animals or your clients' companion animals can come into the clinic for fun events, that dispels anxiety every time they have that experience. So that fun experience, if it is fun enough, only so if it is So speaking of fun, enough, yeah. I have a theory on your graph that you mentioned. So we were talking about um, cats coming into the clinic on the rise and with millennials, dogs on the decline. My theory on this, and feel free to jump in and, and argue it if you like, is that with millennials and, and having these thicker, heavier 
um, more closely strong, strong related, goodness, find an adjective, Sarah, bonds with their pets, you know, very strong bonds with their pets. Um, they're emotionally tied to their pets as well. So I'm curious as to whether the reason you're seeing that decline is because after the puppy vaccine visits are over and then that annual visit comes and it's been an extended amount of time, it's been a year since that last puppy visit to the, the first year visit, if they haven't seen their veterinarian in between there and they're not having those fun visits to have a positive association with the vet, then they start building that anxiety and that negative association. And because I feel like people are more emotionally attached to their animals' emotions, that makes them less likely to come in and be compliant and have more of those visits because I think there is that negative emotional association. So I think that really needs to be addressed. I think more veterinarians really need to encourage and push for those fun visits. You know, schedule it on your heartworm treatments. Come in once a month. Just get weighed. Get a cookie from the reception desk. Go tour the, the hospital with a technician. Go meet a couple other technicians. But that way, from that last puppy visit to that first annual visit, and then a whole year later for that next annual visit, you don't have this massive amount of time, at least from the dog's perspective, that they now have a reason to be afraid. They now have a reason that every time they come into the vet, they just get poked with something. And and I feel like people are tied to that emotional state in their pets just as much as they're tied to their own emotional state about having dental visits or doctor visits. And I can tell okay. you if I yeah. went to my OBGYN, you know, five times a year and it was only one for something medical, but the other time he gave me a book or a lollipop, I'd be a lot more happy about going in. <laughs> Give me a lollipop. I'm happy anytime. Right? Uh, you know, it's yeah. So uh, everything you said is true, and there's data to actually support what you're saying. Uh, but we know that just because it's hardwired that we kind of know that. So if you go to Costco and have a bad experience, whatever that might be, a horrible experience, you're not necessarily going back really fast, you know? So because our pets are members of the family and arguably, as we've talked about, in a way that's more intense than ever before, if people perceive that their pet has had a bad experience, perceive it, whether that's the case or not, if they perceive their pet has a bad experience, they probably won't come back to you and they may not go back to the veterinarian for a very long time. And some of those bad experiences of fractious cats, bad cats, angry cats, all these terms that even veterinary professionals, thankfully, have stopped using or are stopping to use. And Squirrel are, food. In, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> instead, understanding that these animals are just terrified. And, yeah. and I would argue, and I'm not alone, and a lot of people who do behavior like I do feel, that in some cases, they actually feel like they're going to die, literally. Yeah. Yeah. that they are going to die. Fear Free came about because Marty Becker realized uh, through a couple of veterinary behaviorists, including Dr. Karen Overhaul, who's like the queen of the world in my world. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but Dr. Overhaul pointed out how this happens in the brain, you know, and it does happen in the brain, uh, where the fear is so intense, it's remembered again. But the joy can be just as intense, and it can be very simple. So you're walking down the street with your dog, and the bank, the bank gives you, you wish free money, but instead free cookies for the dog. Next time you walk down the street, I can assure you, if it's a good cookie, your dog is going to want to pull you into that bank. Mm -hmm. We'll stop and remember the exact spot. It's as if the dog has GPS. 
I have a video of our dogs. Uh, Marty Becker says it's like, um, and he and I have been friends for, as he says, decades, which is <laughs> depressing to me that I've been friends with anyone for decades. <laughs> but but he, he points out that when, when I show this video at conferences, that it looks like I've got Alaskan sled dogs pulling me down the street. When we get within a, two blocks probably from our veterinary practice, and the dogs realize that no matter which direction, no matter which direction we came from or come from, uh, they begin dragging me down the street. These are dogs that generally heal by my side. You'll have to trust me when I say that. They're not <laughs> perfect, but they're pretty good. And, and now suddenly when they realize where they are, they're just pulling me. And I can't open the door fast enough. And, and I did a live video of that. And some, more than one person commented saying I had to edit the video. No dogs do this. Well, how do you edit a live video, first of all? So I did it again, you know, just to show people that, yes, and, but my dogs aren't extraordinary. What's extraordinary is that I happen to live reasonably close to the practice and that we did everything you just said for forever. We would come in just for cookies and leave. Maybe I'd bring them to the scale too, by the way. So they'd mm -hmm. come in for cookies, they'd be weighed because dogs sometimes don't like that. So I fixed that instantly. So they would get weighed. And in fact, our dog has actually pushed other dogs off the scale. Because, <laughs> because they want those cookies right now. They can't possibly wait. And and actually, our cat. I know impulse control. Yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> our cat, my impulse control as well. Our, our uh, you should see me around ice cream. Our cats. Our cat is no different. Uh, she likes going to the veterinarian. I'm not sure whether she wakes up in the morning and says, "This is what I want to do." But when the carrier comes out, she complies. And at the veterinary clinic, she is just, do what you want to do to me. I'm fine. Uh, just continue giving me that tuna. Now, mm -hmm. you know, that doesn't work for every dog or cat because they are so terrified that that fear is so entrenched at this point in time. You know, I was able to start young with our animals or fairly young, at least when I got them. Um, and that's not always the case. The good news is it can be fixed. It just takes some effort on your part to communicate to clients how to do that. And the thing about millennial clients is for the most part, they want to do that. Yeah, I find that as well. And I think that the other thing that we need to look at in regard to the approach too is that um, fear never fixes fear. So being very conscious about what we're um, you know, kind of exposing them to or what we're doing to them. Is it something that's going to help alleviate some of that tension or is it something that's going to add to that fearful state? You know, restraint is one of the first things that comes to mind. We restrain for safety first and foremost, right? If we feel like we're about to get bit, we hold on tighter. But why are we about to get bitten? You know, we, we need to stop and address that reason, the root of that reason first, instead of just looking at the situation right in front of us at that very moment because the more that we induce animals um, that are already in a fearful state with things that cause additional fear there's no learning there's no fixing there's no alleviating that it's only going to be worse the next time around and i think it's important to really openly communicate that with clients in particular because i think you're right i think more people are interested in, in the welfare of their animals their family companions so they're going to listen when you say listen Here's why I think you need to come by and get a cookie every once in a while. Here's why I think you need to normalize your cat carrier, make it a fun place for your cat so it's not 
only coming out when we're gonna do something stressful and now the carrier is stressful or now you just touching the carrier is stressful for the cat. So I think the open communication is really key when in addressing these types of things, why we're doing what we're doing with clients so that, so that they're compliant too and they help in that process and don't inadvertently induce more fear by their own actions even at home before you get to the clinic. All true. Uh, you know, there was one study that was done that said that I don't even know how this works myself, that uh, people reported their cat increased in anxiety when they called the veterinarian to make an appointment. <laughs> so I'm not sure if it's people's perception, if it's their own anxiety, or these cats somehow listened in on the phone call. I, I don't know, but I think that's an interesting data set. Uh, another interesting data set to me is that when this was last done, the Bayer Usage Study 3, so admittedly this goes back a few years at this point, that it's 60%, 58% to be exact, of cat parents uh, suggest their cat hates going to the veterinarian. Mm -hmm. Hate is a pretty strong word. Yeah. The good, the good news, though, that's bad news, really bad news, because if, they're, if they perceive their cat hates it, they're not going to go. But... And their cats rarely drive there themselves, you know, besides they hate it. They don't want to drive there. It doesn't need to be that way. And that's why, again, that's I circle back to Fear Free. And in this case, cat-friendly practices too, I suppose. I mean, that's what they were created for, uh, to fix this. And, and I think the profession, I'll rephrase that. I know the profession is capable of fixing it. And in fact, there's now plenty of data to suggest Fear Free and cat-friendly practices both report that visits are up, the uh, employees, whether they be the technicians, the assistants, the nurses, and the veterinarians all feel safer. Mm -hmm. Safety has improved. Uh, but what's more, the clients appear more content. The pets appear more content, or in some cases, even happier. I mean, this is all good news. So this is why, in part, I am such a huge fan. I have been from day one. Of, of fear free and also cat friendly practices. Definitely. Yeah. I, I, some of the changes, they seem very subtle, but I think make such a, a, a wonderful difference just from, you know, not being on a cold exam table, letting the cat hide in the sink or explore the room prior to, you know, the veterinarian coming in, having some tasty treats available, whether the cat wants it or not, you know, a little diffuser here and there. I think having separate waiting areas so there's less stress, all of these things add up and make a difference in, in the overall emotional state of the animal, which in turn is going to directly affect compliance, owner compliance. You know, you want them to bring their cats in. You want them to, you know, catch things at a moment where you can do something about it versus a, an advanced disease process because they're not bringing their pets in. So, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's important to be very open with clients about what you're doing in your practice to make their kitties feel more comfortable. And speaking of helping kitties, I, I definitely want to ask you about your nonprofit organization. Um, everycat.org is the website for that. And so um, I think this is fantastic. I love what you guys are doing with this. And can you just um, talk about how this can be really helpful and beneficial to the veterinary community to learn more about this nonprofit, why they should know um. about it? Gosh, it's not my organization. I'm just honored to be on the board, uh, and I. You're have very much a part of it, though. As a board member, that's I think that's important. You have a very large influence with what happens, and I know that in nonprofits in particular, board members are they're not sit by, you know, leave it on my resume kind of people. So, 
No, this is not. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I've been on the board 15 years or so of this organization. They Wonderful. clearly can't, they can't get rid of me. I can't get uh, enough of you. <laughs> I don't know about that. Uh, it, it was once called the Win Feline Foundation. And every cat, every cat you treat, every cat you've ever treated, think of a cat, any cat, uh, that, Sarah, think of a cat that you dealt with yesterday or the day before or the day before that. And I don't know what you did with that cat. Did you listen to the heart of the cat? So what we now know about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, most of that was once funded by what was called the Wind Feline Foundation. Uh, we don't know enough about it. We still need to know more about it, and we still need to be able to have better tools to fix this problem. But now uh, they're for three breeds. Uh, you could take a simple genetic test to determine if a gene defect is might be there uh, that creates feline hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. You're not old enough to remember, but your great-granddad veterinarian might uh, dilated cardiomyopathy and how cats all over the country were dying or otherwise going blind or just getting sick from dilated cardiomyopathy. That stopped when uh, Dr. Paul Pion came to what was then the Wind Feline Foundation and said, I have an idea that's different than all these cardiologists who were suggesting, oh, we need to find some sort of treatment. He said we can prevent it. Uh, because mm. he felt there wasn't enough taurine and amino acid, which cats cannot create on their own, and cat food. It turned out he was right about that crazy idea, which when Feline Foundation funded at that time. I just talked last night to Joan Miller, who was then the president, I'm going back decades now, of, <laughs> of this organization. She told me how that all came about. Uh, she has told me that uh, feline leukemia was once called the feline lymph node disease. Mm. It wasn't under even understood that this is a retrovirus. Nobody knew, you know, and it was the Wind Feline Foundation funding that created the ability for researchers to figure that one out as well. And the list goes on. I mean, I could be talking to you for hours. I, I believe what might be at the top of the list is feline infectious peritonitis, FIP, mm. always a death sentence, not necessarily anymore. I mean, that's, that's amazing. That's it is. Amazing, That's huge. amazing. And it's all because of funding from this organization now called the Every Cat Health Foundation. Uh, check out their website, uh, everycat.org, as you point out. And, and consider, for example, if one of your clients, uh, if their cat dies, uh, oftentimes a donation is made, right, in that pet's name, maybe to your vet school, but consider giving a donation to every cat, particularly if the cat dies of FIP or uh, heart disease, because there are specific funds set up where that five or ten or twenty or a hundred and five or five thousand five dollar contribution you make actually goes to that specific health problem which your client's cat passed away from. That would mean we're talking about things that mean a lot to clients. That would mean a ton to not only the client but also all cats, because then we can do more with more money to fund more research. It's, it's an organization that I am so proud to be a part of, a small part of, uh, which makes a difference every single day for every cat on the planet. I am not exaggerating. 
I love that. And I love the personal touch of donating to an organization like that because it does. It makes it more personal. People can feel like their their pet is not dying in vain per se. That that it's information true. that that they're using, there are people out there that are trying to change the world for pet owners that are in the same position and and knowing that your veterinarian is on board with that and is even cognizant of that is huge. I mean, I think that makes a big difference. Yeah, for sure. Now, now if only um with with this uh, taurine deficiency induced dilated cardiomyopathy issue, we had a precursor before we had this problem in canines. I mean, this is research from decades ago, and there was no you know premonition that we might see this resurface in canines. <laughs> <laughs> so what's happening in canines now, I think, is a bit different uh, than what went on with cats at that time. I also think that it's not even understood. So I. Uh, just talked to a veterinary nutritionist about this, uh, I don't know, about two weeks ago. And, and she was telling me, yeah, we know this much, but there's still, we don't know. We, we don't mm -hmm. know the connection exactly. Uh, but with cats, now we are seeing dilated cardiomyopathy again. Why? Why? What's the deal? It's because people are making their own cat food yeah. and, not, and not talking with or not going to sites that are appropriate sites, uh, which veterinary nutritionist or boarded nutritionist uh, develop recipes for, they're creating their own. So it turns out there's a bit of an uptick in dilated cardiomyopathy in cats, but that should not be there. Uh, that yeah. should not be happening. And that's I'm another reason why dispelling these myths is so incredibly important. Yeah, and that's that's a lot of, a lot on the client education aspect. You think about your kind of your TPR sheets, and you gather your detailed history. At least your technician or your nurse does, you know, on intake with an exam, and um, you know these are all various different talking points. When you get to nutrition, and and they're like, oh, I have a homemade diet of you know chicken and vegetables for my cat. Okay, let's talk about this. You know, what what additives do you have? Are there any vitamins or minerals added? What else are you giving the cat? Is there any variety or diversity in the protein sources? Like. Um, I feel that board certified veterinary nutritionists are one of the most underutilized services on the on the planet when it comes to pet health care. I mean, and, and I think the average owner, unless you're talking to your clients about the direct correlation, don't understand that even behavior and nutrition are directly related. Nutrition is related to everything. And, you know, I'm preaching to the choir. This is something that veterinarians know, obviously, and veterinary staff, but your clients don't know it. Your clients don't know how directly connected these things are. And it's so very important as you're going down that sheet and as you're going over, you know, all these things that are mentioned, um, homemade diets in particular, I, I've seen a huge spike in people doing the crock pot diets, doing things like that. And sometimes it's fine. Sometimes mm -hmm. they're balanced. Sometimes it works. Um, you know, even generalized fresh diets. Sometimes they do, I have my dogs on a generalized fresh diet, you know, and, and they do great with it. But when they don't, they don't, and it's bad. Yeah. So I'm looking at my phone because I wanted to get the website right. It's vetnutrition.tufts. Yes, I love Tufts. Yeah. So yes. uh, this is Dr. Lisa Freeman and her group over there. Yeah. Uh, they've got a wonderful site with blogs that are written for pet parents primarily. Uh, and <laughs> no one dispels myths. I mean, it's myth after myth. Unfortunately, there are that many. And, mm -hmm. and they go through them in these various blog posts. Also, they keep up to date. So the most up-to-date information about what is true, what is not true concerning uh, dog food and dilated cardiomyopathy, the whole grain-free issue or not, 
yeah. is is all there. So that is another great site for folks to go to rather than Susie's website, you know? <laughs> well, I like uh, um, also, I don't know if you've looked at Nom Nom's blog or not, but I like the information that Nom Nom uh, puts out. And, um, Who's that? Dr. I, I don't Nom Nom is a fresh dog food company, and Dr. Schmalberg is the board-certified vet nutritionist that helped formulate that diet, but they've got a microbiologist on the team, a bioinformatics lead on the team. Mm. I mean, they have a team of scientists um, that put together the nutritional formula for each of their diets that they've been testing for quite some time. And um, what I love about them is that, um, and I went through a ton of fresh food companies. I was on this nutrition kick for a while, but they are the most transparent. They talk about exactly what ingredients are in their food, why they're using those specific ingredients, and the education that they put out, the content that they put out is is relatable, whether you're a pet parent or you want to de- dive deeper into some of their research. And, and you know, if you're more of the, the research nerd, you can get more scientific with what they have to offer. But it's very digestible information, nutritionally speaking, haha, for, <laughs> um, for consumers, for pet parents to understand why they're putting the things in their diet that they are, why they're recommending certain things, why certain ingredients are not included in their diets, but also about like gut bacteria and overall gut health and how that's connected to the brain. And um, so I really do like the educational information that they put out because it. They, they, I think they do a really good job with it. So I think that's another site that... Um, that veterinarians and veterinary staff can use just to pull some of these bits and pieces of information that's really helpful to to their clients to help them make good decisions when it comes to pet nutrition and pet care in general. Speaking of nutrition, something you might not have heard about, maybe you have, but uh, a number of veterinary professionals haven't yet heard about this. Uh, and then I know we're running over time here, but this is the most exciting thing for me that's happened for cats. Ooh, uh, what since, do we have? Since catnip maybe. Uh, it's, it's, it's a diet. I mean, how many clients have given up cats because, uh, the person's allergic to cats or their spouse mm. or significant other, the kids are allergic to cats or not adopted cats because of an allergy in the home, or they live with a cat, but the human animal bond isn't what it could or should be because the allergist probably appropriately. So has said, okay, you're going to live with three cats. I can give you this drug, this drug, and this drug, but do not sleep in the same room as that cat. Or separate yourself and buy 28 HEPA vacuum cleaners or whatever the advice is. So now there is a pet food, a cat food, that actually prevents us. It's a pet food for us and your clients, really, to prevent us from being allergic to cats. Interesting. Have you heard about this? Yeah, it's called... I have not. See, the problem with the food is it's release, you know, big pet food, it's a Purina food. And big pet mm. food companies plan on these releases, what, years in advance sometimes, certainly months in advance. And no one predicted a pandemic. So they released <laughs> the food, I think it was March of last year. And the timing couldn't have been worse. And being an appropriately logical company, they said, okay, we're going to pull back on the press because... No one's going to cover this. Besides, there are more important things. People are dying because of the pandemic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So it really has not been publicized as it could be. It's called Purina Live Pro Plan, Purina Pro Plan Live Clear. Uh, and it, it, so when people are allergic to cats, as a, you guys probably know this, quick review, what they're not allergic to is the cat itself. They're not yes. allergic to the dander per se. What they're allergic to is a protein on the cat's saliva 
uh, which actually has a name, FELD1 or FELD1. So the cats do what cats do and they groom themselves. And mm -hmm. that sticky, it's a sticky protein, sticks on their coat. But when the hair comes off their coat, then it sticks to everything. And, yeah, right. So it sticks to the wall, the floor, your clothes, your clients' clothes, anything. Uh, so what, what, what can be done about that? So it's amazing that now an egg product is being used in this food in a novel way to negate that protein. So it doesn't diminish the protein because no one knows for sure what FELD1 does. So the Purina scientist who I've actually spoken to about this, I think it's the coolest science in the world. It's amazing. I mean, who gets up in the morning and says, well, I'm going to use an egg product to diminish this. I mean, it's amazing <laughs> science just for science geeks. It's incredible. Uh, but it, there's study after study, peer-reviewed, published studies, not only on the animal side, but from human allergists, which to me is even more compelling, that this actually does work. And what it does is it diminishes or prevents us, if you're allergic to cats or your clients, from being allergic to the cats. And, and to me, this is great for cats because once it catches on, and it will in time, unfortunately, as I said, the release of this product is when it was, but it will catch on because it's so brilliant, you know? And yeah. more, cats, more cats will be adopted, fewer cats relinquished, more people living with cats with the opportunity to have a more intense bond. Um, I'll name drop a little here. He's a friend of mine, Dr. Mike Lappin. Uh, and, and we both do talks on this topic. And he let me borrow a slide of his of this. You see this lump in the bed and six cats around the lump. And the lump is him. But he wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't able to share his room with, with cats uh, because he himself shh, don't tell anyone, is allergic to cats. So, <laughs> so he kept the cats outside the bedroom, but now this food has come along. I mean, it's, it's just the most incredible thing. And, and I am glad you gave me the opportunity to talk about it just a bit because yeah. uh, this will save lives. How many years has it been in trials? Oh, gosh, several. I don't know the yeah. exact, three approximately, something like that. Yeah, and just launched 2020, March 2020, basically. Yeah. Soft launch, we'll yeah. call it. Yeah, yeah, the pandemic did a lot of lot of damage to a lot of launches and things. I mean, you from a nonprofit perspective will understand in our nonprofit organization, we were literally just getting ready to launch a capital campaign for a new training facility for our shelter to service program. Oh, yeah. We're like, yeah. okay, that's going to be three years from now before we revisit that. <laughs> it turns out it may be three years. So we were all thinking yes. three months at the beginning. But no. yeah, 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 yeah. So so the good news is this product is out there. It's available. It's readily available at many mm -hmm. of the pet superstores and that kind of thing. Uh, Purina Pro Plan. So is this, plan this is over there. the counter? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, it's OTC. Yeah. Nice. So hopefully it'll really take off because, mm -hmm. uh, as I say, I'm I'm such a fan because I could see the welfare part of this uh, mm -hmm. about it about it saving cat lives. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's so saddening that so many people do have to feel that the only thing they can do is to part ways with their pets, their family members because of, of things like allergies. It's, it's pretty significant. It's a significant issue. So I, yeah, I, I mean, love yeah, that they're anyone, developing this product. Yeah, anyone who works in the shelter world knows how many intake number they have because at least yeah. people say they're allergic to cats. But now there's a comeback. You, you can say, all right, try this product for 
I don't know what the period of time is to tell you the truth in which it'll work, but it works mm -hmm. pretty quickly. You know, not not a year, not even a month. You should be able to see a difference pretty quickly, and then report to us. Well, if they say no, I don't even want to try it. It means they probably are dead set on giving up the cat. But well, for a lot of people, reason. Yeah, uh -huh. <laughs> it's probably not the but, allergies. Yeah, but for a lot of people, they really do want to keep their cats, and uh, this this really can prevent a lot of heartbreak uh, and, as I said, save cat lives. You may or may not know the answer to this, but are they working on anything like this for dogs as well? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. Dog allergies are a little different, uh, but it would be great. So there have been products that have come about over a course of years, uh, all sorts of products, nutritional supplements. There was something called Allerpet that you, I think, shampoo the pet with or something. And there's never been data you know, published data on any of these things. There are also supposed to be hypoallergenic cats, and there are indeed cats that anecdotally, anecdotally, no science, uh, that some people, for whatever reason, they say Siberian cats have less of that dander. Um, certainly the cats with uh, short coats like the Devon Rex, the Cornish Rex. Yeah, and Abyssinians, uh, I think we're in that category too. Maybe. But you know what? It's all anecdotal. And besides, in the pedigree cat world, as much as I love pedigree cats, and I do, uh, how many people have a pedigree cat or mm, are yeah. willing or able to get a pedigree cat because they can be expensive? So um, that's, I, I don't think, in of itself, a realistic solution for most people, even if it is true and we don't know that it is. On the dog world, there's a bit more data to suggest that at least some dogs, for some people, not everybody, so the uh, Portuguese water dog, the poodle mm -hmm. varieties, uh, the Bichon and the Bichon's relatives, like the Coton de Tuliar, very fancy yeah. dog, uh, or, or uh, the Maltese, and, and some of the terriers, maybe more than others, but all the terriers in general, also the Schnauzers, they may be less allergic problem-causing, than say Labradors and Golden Retrievers and other dogs that appear in general to have more dander. Some of it seems to be breed specific. Some of it is individual dog specific. Some of it is familial specific. I think we don't know all of that, but at least there's some information to demonstrate that yes, your client who's allergic, or maybe you, can go to a house of someone who breeds toy poodles and it's baptism by fire. It either works mm. or it doesn't, you know, mm. and you're okay for an hour you probably would be then okay if you're okay at the breeder's house with 12 dogs. You're probably okay with that one little puppy you choose, uh, but not necessarily. And allergies are kind of a crazy thing as allergists have explained to me. It's like there's a tipping point. So for dogs or cats or anything else people are allergic to. So I have hay fever. So mm -hmm. I can deal with allergies or potential allergies better at certain times of year because in the summer when the hay, or spring when hay fever or early fall when hay fever is really really bad and something else puts me over the edge if you will if i've reached that plateau of what I, my body can tolerate then i begin to have a reaction far more easily than i would in the middle of winter when hay fever isn't an issue so the allergies kind of add up like this you follow kind of what i mean yep. Sure do. Yeah. yeah. So there, there comes a point where, you know, so that dog or that cat can be brought into a home and everything's fine, but adding one more dog or one more cat may be the problem. Everybody is an individual, of course, 
and everyone's allergies are different and sometimes they vary on that person's personal ability to deal with that specific pet for reasons nobody knows no matter cat allergies it's like 20 percent of the people or something on the planet i mean it's so incredibly common and yeah. and if we can do something to negate that in a way that does not hurt the cats at all uh then what the heck why wouldn't we as i say uh it'll maybe the allergists wouldn't like it because they're not giving as many allergy desensitization shots to people <laughs> maybe maybe it impacts their income or certain products that you know the decongestion products that you buy uh but other than that everybody will love it except those companies they can just all you have to do is is rethink your strategy you start having consultations and educating people on the things they can do to reduce their allergies rather than injecting them that's all just change your strategy right yeah i think you're right and i think yeah. that's another place by the way in the veterinary world for technicians to talk about okay I'm going to spend 15 minutes with you and we could talk about how you actually can live with cats even if you yeah. have allergies. Yeah, and to tack on a, a little bit to what you were saying too is, is thinking outside of the box a little bit because when you're talking about you know, stacking, it's almost like trigger stacking, but stacking those allergic responses or, or al allergy-inducing um, particles or whatever they may be, whatever you're allergic to in the environment, you have to remember too if you have a cat or a dog uh, that goes in and out of the home and you have seasonal allergies, po pollen related allergies, hay fever, grasses, things like that, those things are coming into contact with your pet too. So as they're coming back in the environment, you're stacking that just like you mentioned to where you hit that, basically that point where you, your body just can't take anymore. So being aware of yeah. things like that with them coming in and out of the environment. Nutrition, I think is another one that a lot of people don't think about. If you are allergic to something that you're feeding your pet, um, sometimes that can have a consequence as well. You know, if you have an issue Good with point. eggs, yeah. dairy, you know, you have intolerances to different vegetables, things like that, um, that can that can cause an issue too. So just being conscious of all these different things that contribute to allergic responses in people and just, you know, taking a look at the overall environment saying, okay, am I doing anything that's contributing to the problem and can we remove some of this or replace some of this stuff? Yeah, just having this conversation is making my nose itch. <laughs> I'm one of those really lucky people. I don't have any allergies and I need to find some wood to knock on. And like my whole Good. family has allergies, but I'm, I am, I'm like, whew, no dogs, no cats, no external environment allergies. Like all is wow. good. Yeah. Wow. There's a couple of medications that I can't tolerate, but other than that, we are good. Well, that's good. That is yeah. good. I have enough other problems to deal with, but. <laughs> <laughs> we all do. So. Awesome. This, I think this has been chock full of some fantastic information and um, I really appreciate all your contribution to help kind of veterinary professionals know how to utilize um, not only their staff. I really like where we touched on, you know, utilizing your veterinary technicians. They're very knowledgeable individuals and really tapping them into the process and, and um, again, paying them, of course. Um, but yeah. getting that information out to your clients, being open and communicative in a very effective way. And then of course, all this stuff that's going on with the kitties, I just love. So I, I hope that everyone that listens in on this podcast pops over to every cat and takes a look at kind of what you're doing there with some of that research and how that can really help them as far as um, their field is, is concerned and, and keeping up with the research and the progress so that they can continue to kind of grow with that science and help their clients along the way, especially, especially felines. I love that we're starting to see this, this increase in our kitty population coming into the hospitals. I want to hold on to that and keep that trend in motion. So thanks for all, our, all of your input on that. Um, I am going to post all the links and everything in the show comments too, so people can easily access that and get in touch with you if need be and follow all the fun stuff that 
that you're a part of and you're doing. Um, and uh, don't hesitate to keep an eye out on any questions or comments that pop up. Uh, so every once in a while we have people that throw things out on our comments for, for our guests. So chime in at any point in time, answer anything. And if you think of anything else fun, send it my way and I'll be sure to include it for people to, to access as well. Perfect. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Absolutely. 